This episode of Excuse the Intermission is presented in partnership with the Grand Cinema. The Grand Cinema is the South Sound's nonprofit home for independent, international, and local film. The theater strives to enrich the lives and enhance the cultural vitality of the greater Tacoma community through the art of film. The Grand Cinema is dedicated to providing their signature art house movie going experience in a safe and healthy fashion. There is something for everyone at the Grand Cinema. Along with their wonderful weekly programming, they are also home to the Weird Elephant Late Night Film Series, the Silver Screen Society, Free Family Flicks, and Tacoma's Outdoor Movie Series. You can also inquire about theater rentals at the Grand Cinema by contacting their box office or website. The staff and volunteers cannot wait to make your experience at the movies a memorable one, so grab your friends, grab your tickets, and don't forget to stop at the concession stand for the Grand Signature Popcorn. The Grand Cinema is located at 606 Fawcett Avenue in Tacoma, Washington, and open seven days a week. You can find them online at www.grandcinema.com and on Instagram and Facebook at The Grand Cinema. Macaulay. And I am Grant Colombini. And this is Excuse the Intermission, a discussion show surrounding movies. Ahead on the pod, Grant and myself will be discussing the new animated feature, Wendell and Wild, from stop motion legend Henry Selleck, which hit Netflix at the end of October. And then after that conversation, the two of us will have a long awaited and overdue chat about our favorite animated films. That all starts next on ETI after this short break. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Juan Carlos, and I am the host of the Revisionary Podcast. And I'm producer Phil. I make them sound good. If you've never heard of the Revisionary Podcast, the way it works is we bring on guests, usually comedians, to tell a nonfiction story about their lives in which they wish things had gone a little bit differently. And we give them the opportunity to retell that story, which they can change any facts or details they want. Then we'll discuss the impact of those changes on their story. We're happy to announce we're now on the Chatter Network. And make sure you check out the Revisionary Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, my friend, we're doing it. Long awaited. Excuse the intermission. Finally goes animated today. Yes. Um, let's save the more general discussion about why we love this type of movie making and uh, this movie going experience for mm-hmm. a little bit later after the Wendell and Wild discussion. But you're very clearly excited for this chat today, Absolutely. as am I. Yes. Um, it's funny, you know, I think that of the episodes that have just been you and I, we've actually been able to cover some of our more exciting subgenres of yeah. movies because we did the director's cut, which was like one of the top 10 episodes that we first thought about doing when yeah. this pod started. And then, hello, this one's been sitting it's, on the table forever. I want to say day one, we, we came up with this episode and we've just keep pushing it back, pushing right. it back. Um, all right. So let's cover Wendell and Wild, though. This is the latest feature film from the iconic Henry Selleck, who is, of course, the director of previous genre masterpieces, including The Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline. And then has added, um, or this, what is added to this movie's hype is that there's also involvement from Monkey Paw Productions, which is anchored by Jordan Peele. Peele and Selleck both also take home writing credits on this film, as well as to top it all off, Peele and his running mate, Keegan-Michael Key, voice our titular characters, Wendell and Wilde, the lovable, bumbling demons. 
Um, this film features voice work also from veteran actors such as Ving Rames, Angela Bassett, and James Hong. However, it is the 19-year-old Lyric Ross who voices the film's lead role of Cat, a troubled teen who is trying to cope with guilt, loss, and anger in this most bizarre of settings, which really shines the brightest. The movie currently holds a 3.6 out of 5 on Letterboxd and is being praised for its beautiful animation, of course, and its willingness to tackle some thematic material. So let's begin with the most basic of prompts, and then we'll wade into some of the deeper ideas here in a minute. Did you like this movie? Absolutely. I, I was a big fan. I, I've, I always like anything that Henry does. I mean, Nightmare Before Christmas is one of my end-all, be-all favorites that may be talking about. We may be talking about that a little bit later on, but uh, I mean, Coraline, Corpse Bride, he has definitely like solidified himself um, alongside, you know, like Aardvark it, with the Wallace and Gromit people of kind of like the king of of stop motion and claymation. And this is a 10 out of 10 Henry Selleck film. I mean, it looks exactly like his other films. It fits perfectly while still being new enough and unique enough and like a cool little idea take on the, you know, afterlife underworld, you know, back and forth. And so I had a lot of fun. I mean, it's not a perfect film by any means, but I, I had a lot of fun with this one. And it's the first feature-length film that we've gotten from Henry since 2009 when Coraline did come out. So it was really cool to see kind of this return to form. Mm -hmm. You can definitely tell that the advancements in the stop-motion game were 100% used to his talents and his ability and then also um, the voice acting and some of that stuff that we'll get into. Absolutely. the, The money behind it from Monkey Paw, the production, all of it, pretty great. It's kind of funny, the beginning of the film, when I first started it, not really knowing what I was going to get myself into, because this is a Netflix film, and Mm -hmm. so probably most of your promotional material is secluded to that streaming service. Like, I hadn't seen any trailers or anything like that. Yeah, neither had I. I just seen stills and Of course, right. Um, So when it first started, I knew it was rated PG-13. We get this opening shot of um, a brewery, funny enough. (laughs) And it's kind of on this like riverbank town and it really reminded me of the beginning of us where we're at like the pier next Mm -hmm. to the ocean. So there's definitely that Jordan Peele influence like right off the bat. For sure. That was really cool. Um, I actually stopped watching it upstairs here at the house and then went down to the projector just because, and I'll get to Coraline a little bit later here, but I really wanted to try to recreate a theater going experience Mm -hmm. just because it's like, these colors look amazing. Everything looks so cool here. Um, and then I, I'm curious if you picked out any little um, nods to other genre classics or other stop motion films I, while watching it, or if you were maybe just like cognizant that they were probably happening, yeah. and then maybe it's like, oh, I'm going to go back and watch for like the little things now, because one that stood out to me, which my eyes just like look, it, it, or they just are drawn to this number, but um, our lead character, Kat, the house that she grew up in, mm-hmm. in this town, the house number is 237. So, of course, room 237 yeah. from The Shining. So, yeah. when I noticed that, I was like, oh, there's probably 5, 10, 12 other things that yeah. I've not noticed. For sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure there's a lot more Easter eggs than I caught. I I noticed one of the skulls in like one of the first parts when um, you kind of go from the land of the living down to the land of the dead, or I think it's when Wendell and Wilder are being summoned and they're coming oh, okay. up in the carriage. Yeah. Like one, one of the skulls 
um, is definitely like zero from uh, Nightmare oh, Before Christmas. One of the spirits that's floating around. No, right? no, no, no. Like just like as it's going from the underworld up top, it does kind of like this pan where you see like oh, dirt okay. and rocks and stuff uh-huh. as they're like crawling up. And so there's a bunch of skulls and skeletons and bones. And like okay. one of the skulls is like looks exactly like Zero's head and his eyes. I'm like, right. And I'm sure there is some other. I think I maybe spotted Zero earlier in the film. And, too, and that's, that you say I'm sure. That, so. I'm sure. And yeah. there's just like these the type of creatures that are created, mm-hmm. obviously very reminiscent of the creatures from Halloween Town, the creatures from the underworld and Corpse Bride mm-hmm. and, and all, all these things. So there are, I think, a lot of nods um, to Tim Burton and his influence. I think there was even, I think there's a Frankenweenie reference somewhere Wouldn't in there. Surprise me. And then, um, and then the only like, uh, like nod to genre, cause you know, as much as this is kind of like got a little bit of like the horror and scary thriller side, there is a lot of comedy and there's the part where, um, father best voiced by James Hong, um, does the line of the reports of my death were like greatly exaggerated over the I'm, loudspeaker, yeah, right? Yeah. You no, know, it's like when he like stumbles back, but it's something like that where it's like, that's Monty Python. So there's mm-hmm. like, you know, there's a nice little, little nods there, which I think is great of Jordan Peele being able to pepper in, you know, his comedy influences with his horror influences on a movie like this. Absolutely. Um, so let's, let's talk about the subject matter a little bit here. Uh, our lead character of cat voiced by Lara Ross. She is a 13 year old girl who is living with multiple different aces, Mm -hmm. these adverse childhood experiences that I don't want to spoil too much for anybody because when I started watching the film and then realized where we were going, I, you know, it really grabs you in right away. Absolutely. um, Her, her story and her background. Um, But she is dealing with the death of her parents, growing up in group and foster homes, juvenile courts along the way. And then she stumbles into the kind of this, she's on, it's like her last ditch opportunity really to like turn her life around. And she winds up in the town that she grew up in, in this bizarre setting of sorts here. But how do you think that they handled having a lead character or protagonist in a movie like this, where aside from, and I put this in my letterbox review, Sans, the Wendell and Wild demon underworld, Mm -hmm. um, Hellraiser or what however yeah. they refer to her character as um a lot of these a lot of these problems were really grounded in reality absolutely and e- even if they weren't necessarily something you could directly relate to the there's a lot of this you know, like the whole, you know, she comes back to her town and sees her father's brewery burnt down. Mm-hmm. She's asking what happens because she doesn't know. And then she's that, you know, the Klaxons are trying to open up a prison. Obviously, huge, you know, thinly veiled, you know, subcontext there. Yeah, what I have this, I, I have yeah. written down here, the American Industrial Correctional Complex it's, really gets put under a microscope. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> and uh, and then also to like to the point of her, of just kind of like that unfairness, there's nothing she can do. She sees her old world dying and then a prison is going to take over like that just builds a little bit more that that turmoil and that anger and so it's very quickly you identify well, not identify but you know this character and mm-hmm. i think they executed that very perfectly even with a time jump from the opening scene opening credits to when she starts narrating again there's five years right and but so that's you, a very effective montage very effective mm-hmm. and just wraps up kind of you are kind of with her you kind of feel that boiled up anger she doesn't want friends she doesn't want to be here she doesn't care anymore she's just just trying to find anything to connect with her parents. So I, I loved the world that they set up. I thought the characters were really good. I, I loved the fact that they set up the, what she, the three girls she calls the poodles mm-hmm. as like typically in any other movie, like these three are going to be like sub villains or, you know, some right. way, but they end up being like 
they're really nice and they just want to help her they're allies and, the entire time yeah, really yeah. yeah and uh and one of them is the daughter of the klaxon so mm-hmm. I, I love the character development and then uh, uh, of course i mean great representation with the main character but then all across the board we have native american representation we have lgbtq representation we have just an amazing like threshold of really cool complex characters that anyone and everyone can identify with there's something for everyone and i I really like that it felt very real and as more got brought out i wasn't i didn't feel like anything was forced it was it was brilliantly written into this story already of struggle so when you have these characters coming in that have you know historically experienced that it it like just blended in perfectly I do agree with that. I think that a lot of the, or, or I should say, the movie tries to tackle a lot of ideas yeah. and a lot of themes. And I think in some situations, certain topics are brought up and fleshed out better than others. Mm-hmm. But especially that one of the character of uh, Raul, who's mm-hmm. transitioning from Ramona, that character, I thought that was perfect. That was like the Goldilocks Abs- absolutely. bowl of hot porridge yeah. where they did that perfectly. Um, it, it was a plot device for, for some, you know, they mm-hmm. they showed ignorance or they showed how certain characters were ignorant to the idea, like yeah. the mothers keep having, keep having to correct, to people. correct people on the phone and, and the- see phone or whatever the girl's name is like she calls her ramona and then and then catches herself and yeah apologizes. sorry raul yeah. yeah so i really thought that that was done well and then of course with the whole prison and the town being bought out and trying to be rebuilt the idea of gentrification which yeah. gets brought up in almost every single jordan peele script mm-hmm. so to see those through lines you know not only between Selick and his connection to past films and influences like Burton, but also to have the Jordan Peele influence yeah. and the connection from his past films. I thought all of that worked really well. Um, so let's get, so let's talk about some of these characters. It is interesting that the film, I guess is titled Wendell and wild, even though they are, I would say like our, there are B level characters. They're the fairy godmothers. You they, know? they really are. So yeah. I, what I think what they reminded me the most of are like the henchmen and Hercules. I was, that I Hades was, had working pain for and panic are on my notes. Yes. Absolutely. hundred percent. So I really enjoyed them. I thought that, and you know, for this movie that's tackling all these big issues that we were talking about, it is some of the time that you're spent with these two hair gel addicted <laughs> demons <laughs> They really are fun. I mean, Keegan-Michael oh, yeah. Key especially, and just the characterizations, the anima- the animation of their face yeah. as to what we know these actors actually look like. You felt it throughout all of our big-name players, really, like yeah. James Hong as the father. As he looked like, like he, he looked like it he somehow. He had the, the right characterizations. Yeah. Um, Bellsbub, or, or Bearsbub, yeah. who's played by Ving Rhames. Once you ba- hear Basil, Basil, is that how yeah, they bear, pronounce bears it? Bears above is the, oh, the bear yeah, possession, the totem, totem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that he totally, you know, once you are like that's Ving Rhames, and you see it through the animation. So I thought all of those characters did a really fun, or, or the animators did a really fun job of playing to the actors, yeah. through the characters in the animation. And I, I got major, major oogie boogie vibes from 
Dazel in the beginning. And then there's a part where he's like, he has this whole monologue and it, like it, then it clicked with me. I'm like, oh, it's Ving Rames because that's Marcellus Wallace talking. Like Big that's time. all I heard was Marcellus Wallace's voice. And I like that being PG-13, we didn't get bogged down with the, like, yes, it is an animation film, but we didn't get bogged down with like having to cater to kids. You know, like hearing Mike Keegan, Michael Key call someone a janky ass, like was and just like, was really was perfect. Funny. It was like right up his alley. And like Jordan Peele's voice, he's used that voice in a few sketches on key and peel it's one of my favorites and you're right like the way he like moved in his mannerisms i was like it's almost like they maybe motion captured both of them and were able to do wouldn't some, surprise me yeah yeah um there's a great key and peel sketch uh, about how they wrote the movie gremlins too yeah one of the funniest that and, and that's what i think wild was the entire time was just star magic jackson jr and it was just i was cracking up the whole movie every time he was talking and then we already talked about how the character balance of our raul mm-hmm um, role was just played really, really well. I thought that that was great. But then even the Claxtons, who we come to find out really, those are the antagonists yeah. of the film. You, you know, they're the evil ones. We are not rooting for them. I thought that they they were perfect as well, whereas they weren't really this like overwhelming sense of, oh, they're so bad. They're so bad. Here comes a five-minute, ten-minute scene where they're just kind of dragging on. They were really just used sparingly. And when we got their parts, they were usually interacting with other characters who we were already spending more time with. So they never really just like had a standalone scene that could bog down the runtime. Because I have seen a few people write about how, oh, you know, you maybe could have shaved 10 or 15 minutes off here or there. I I really don't know where you would have. The film clocks in at like an hour 45 so yeah it's yeah. a little long but still at the same time i thought every character had enough screen time yeah them included which that's a tough balance to find i feel like in these movies i felt they were like kind of like the slow fuse burn they, mm-hmm. were, they were there in the background the entire time and then at the end it came really important that they were there but the majority in the hunk of the movie is like what wendell and wilde are doing and what cat is doing and then it just happens to all interwovenly connect at the end and i do think it gets it does get a little silly there at the end i mean that's kind of when you feel you feel the script and you feel the production you feel everything kind of trying to wrap up maybe sooner than the story would have allowed for had they gotten the green light to do like a two-hour movie but I, i really don't think that there's any in between either you do shave 15 minutes off and you make this 90 minutes or to have that in kind of climactic us against you scene really feel exciting. Yeah. I, I should say, because it, it, for me, at least it sort of fell flat. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was no. kind of my only gripe against the movie that though. And also, and now this is really interesting something we'll get to, I'm sure later when we're talking about our animated films um, in a more general sense, the one thing that I really did not like about this movie um, and this kind of goes into the characters and everything else here is when I think of Henry Selleck movies and when I think of even the way that Jordan Peele uses the different scores in his films, I was so surprised at the use of like pop music yeah, and, and like a jukebox soundtrack to this movie where I was hoping for some original songs or I was just hoping for a score. The only original one I, I caught was when they're bringing back to life all the old mm-hmm. council members mm-hmm. and they're like singing a song about the hair cream and how it brings people back to life but yeah i like i liked the first one when she has the cyclops and she's like changed her school the uniform. yeah yeah that was cool yeah or, or the boom box the boom box yeah. yeah yeah and uh and like it's playing that punk song about mm-hmm. like i'm not gonna conform and it's like all right yeah and then they just 
kept on using like I you know um, sexy thing by Hot Chocolate comes in at yeah. one point and like doesn't really fit the moment. It's just it does meant to be a celebratory totally song. Totally takes me took me out of the moment. And, and I think I think that's just meant to you know make the kids laugh that are watching this. Um, so yeah, I told I totally agreed with you there. I had a little bit of a problem with uh, the pacing. There was like a lot of just like really short vignettes that would like fade in and then it would just cut jump to another character. Just felt like the editing and maybe the pacing kind of maybe could have been blended in a little bit more, uh, you know, cohesively. And then and then, yeah, the ending of the the rushed bulldozer snowball fight and then Basil like coming up and then immediately just like repairing things with his sons mm-hmm. and then going down. Like, I really liked that scene. It was gr- a great moment. One of the great, you know, subplots, you know, family connection during the whole movie but i was just like oh man that's all we got like i felt like he just came up and goes okay see you soon bye and yeah then he leaves. accepted that very easily yeah. and then also too same with angela bassett's character um sister healy yeah I, or uh, she I, I believe that was her character's name heli yeah. yeah her like <laughs> emdr session or whatever that therapy session was where like she gets cat to confront you know, the manifestation yeah. of her past trauma and everything kind of also came out of nowhere yeah. and was over very quickly. The animation during that awesome. was awesome. Yes. But I love that black and green contrast. Yeah, and the everything. green, the like projector coming mm-hmm. out of her eyes really was cool. really cool. Um, but yeah, I told I, I feel you there of kind of like, oh, we're this is okay. This is happening. Okay. Yeah. And now she's she's conquered her past. Yeah. yeah. Just and now, like that. Now we're moving on. Yeah. yeah. Cheapest, best therapy I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, Okay, so let's let's kind of rank this now in twofold um, with Henry Selick and his directorial features. Where do you have this? Because for me, I do think that it leapfrogs something like James and the Giant Peach, yeah, which he directed. But I still have Coraline and Nightmare Before Christmas ahead of. Yeah, for sure, it's one of those. Um, I think I think it's that little bit of that that honestly just that score that little lack of originality there kind of pegs it down a little bit compared to Coraline and Nightmare which are so kind of iconic and in their own in in their own I mean Nightmare Before Christmas has been popular since day one so popular that Disney when they got the rights to Touchstone immediately incorporated it into Mm -hmm. their brand and then uh, Coraline has become a cult classic Mm -hmm. I mean it's I see constant you know it just rising in ranks and ranks and ranks whether it's animated or just any type of film it's it's fantastic Um, so I, I would put it under that but I think it's number three. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a solid, especially like with the new animation and and then the the importance of it all, the representation yeah. across the board. I think it holds a lot of weight, and it's really cool to see. Like, I was gonna dive into this, and I, I didn't really find or or look it up, but um, I kind of I saw someone bring this up that at one point Tim Burton in in, in referencing his animated films and in that style and and essentially kind of his movies he said that he felt and i i don't don't quote me on this but this is kind of what's been referenced that he said that uh, people of color persons of color don't really fit in that in that scheme hmm. um of things and then to see henry selick a guy who he's worked with really closely go okay we'll hold my beer and make this right. is pretty fucking awesome yeah and i and i don't know if tim burton like i said i didn't dive into it, i didn't find any, a lot of information i don't know if he meant that in a way that a lot of people took it i don't think maybe he was just like i just think of creatures and these like people you know like right yeah or if he maybe there is some you know old hollywood bias buried there somewhere but anyways henry Selick shows up here and it's great to see him partner with 
Jordan Peele. It's an incredible collaboration. It's kind of one of those things where you always see the meme of like, I didn't know I needed this in my life, (laughs) but exactly here we are. And mocap meets monkey paw and I'm all in. Absolutely. And, uh, Jordan Peele, I mean, is obviously on a huge hot streak. It was really fun for me to come to this after, you know, I wasn't a hundred percent blown away by Nope. I loved it, but like, you know, if you go back to that episode on like you and Max wasn't necessarily blown away like I was with us and get out. But this is like awesome to see Jordan just do things and show yes. that he can. It's fun and, to try things. Yeah. And so I'm just, just keep doing whatever you want, Jordan. Just keep doing whatever you want. Well, so where do you have this ranked with his works then? Because if you look at all of, and I'll name here for you, all the monkey pop productions, yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I have it, I think it's tied with us right now. And yeah. I talk about us a lot off mic, at least about how that movie always grows in my estimation, the further I uh, mm-hmm. get removed from it. And then I return to it and I always kind of come back down to earth and I'm yeah. like, Oh no, this movie is what I thought it is. Right. Um, which, which is to say, I, I think that it's less successful than Nope, get out. And then I'm just a huge Candyman fan. Yeah. And so that's obviously a monkey pop production and it's written by, it's co-written by Jordan Peele. So I have this tied with us at number four and then the movies I have below this, which are produced by Jordan Peele's mm-hmm. production company are black Klansman, Keanu and honk for Jesus. Yeah. Um, I, I think I probably agree with you across the board there in, in that order. And it's, and if you look at just that top level there, so you, but you would still prefer Nope to yeah, Wendell. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, and and I think this kind of, he's kind of just checking, you know, boxes off in the, in the horror genre. You know, he's got his, you know, get out is kind of his psychological thriller. Us is kind of the, I'd say another psychological thriller there, but you know, Nope is his monster movie. This is his animation. Candyman is the classic slasher. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool to see him. So it is kind of hard to compare and, and, and rank these because they are so vastly different. But I would say that for the effect that it has and what it was trying to do, it is very equal on par with us. But I think the same way, you know, like the, I'm the same way with us. The farther I get removed and then revisit, I'm just like, oh, no, this is pretty what I thought it was. And I feel like Wendell and Wilde will be that. I'll probably bask in this and be like, man, that was like really good. I loved what they did there. And I'll probably get a little bit elevated. Then if, when I watch it again, I'll be like, oh yeah, no, this is pretty great. Then it's just, you know, a little straightforward. Right. You know, so I a hundred percent agree with you there. My, and I was, and I wanted to remind myself to mention this, but like on my letterbox review and I'm just like such a literal person Mm -hmm. that if I rank something three and a half out of five, I view that as 70% and a right. C minus. I do feel like this movie is much closer to a four out of five mm-hmm. and a, and a 80, right. a, a B minus. I think that this is like a 77, right? Yeah. Like I don't view this as a C minus, a, a near D level film, but I can't quite say that it's like four out of five right. and 80%. But, but yeah, highly recommend it. Um, Wendell and Wild. If you didn't fire it up prior to Halloween, don't sweat it because, as we've mentioned, the themes and the subject matter they are applicable mm-hmm. to any time of the year. So head on over to Netflix, give it a watch, especially if you're fan. If if you are a fan of Selick Peel or have kiddos in those early teenage years, yeah, you know I think that this is like 
So this is almost a return to what where Pixar had us at the beginning of the year with Turning Red, yeah. where I think they had probably a few people fired this up because they saw, saw, oh, a new animated movie on yeah. Netflix, 85%, 90% match or something, and then they watched it and maybe started to get a little upset yeah. or whatever. But so it is definitely for the older older demo for sure. there with your kiddos. Um, but okay, we will take a quick break and return in a moment with a larger discussion surrounding animated films. Welcome to Buy the Cover Podcast. Hey, Gabby. Hey, my lamb. You know, we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but girl, we all do it. That's why we started the podcast, right? Each week when we crack open their book, dive in and dig deep into their chapters. No, I'm bringing the drink. And I'm bringing the food. Listen to Buy the Cover Podcast, part of the Chatter Network on all your favorite streaming platforms. And remember, when you're reading someone's chapter, there's always more on the inside. Don't be a bit. Okay, the time has come. It has only taken us 120 plus episodes (laughs) to have this conversation. And it's one that I know you've been waiting for for a long time, Grant. But also, every time we do a mailbag episode, we are always getting questions about animated movies or people are just asking us, when's the animated exclusive pod coming? Well, here we are. And like I said, when you and I just crank out these episodes, we get to tackle some pretty fun stuff. Um, So top five animated films is on the docket now today. Big picture speaking, what is it that you love about these types of movies? No limitations. Your imagination is it. You can literally create anything you want to, any story, any vision you have, there's an artist out there, or maybe it's you. You can just, you can get that story told, and it's awesome. It's it's incredible what um, studios have been able to do. Obviously, Walt Disney is kind of, you know, the, the king of it all. It really started animation, but DreamWorks has put out great stuff. WB has put out great stuff. Marvel and DC, Star Wars, every franchise something is dipping their toes into the animation world because they they can, and it's it's a lot cheaper than than you know making a set or shooting something in the volume or doing something like that, and so I I just it, there's just been something magical about it that I mean like no pun intended in referencing Disney there is something magic about these movies that just as a kid it transports and teleports you away and then even as an adult I can get totally immersed in animation movies and and at the same time there's something about animation too where you know it's gonna be not not simple but a little bit more like straightforward and so there's just an easier way to immerse yourself in that world when it's done done correctly i mean obviously there's some stink dog animated films out there but we're talking about the best of the best here that are not only my favorite animated films but some of my favorite films in general and and it's also a, a great way to see actors branch out a little bit i love behind the scenes of seeing actors in the in the voice studio and they're still acting with their whole body and then seeing that transferred over to screen. I mean, it's just, it's so cool what comes together. And then, you know, old new school now with technology and and computers, you know, what you're able to program and AI and stuff like that is pretty great. But then going back and watching animators draw each hand by like each page by hand and then flipping it over and then putting it through the multi-pane camera. Like there's just something about it. That's just so cool. I really like the voice talent identification yeah. piece there because it is really fun when you're watching one of these movies to kind of snap your fingers and go, who is that? Who is that? I try and not to he, look at the cast list. so I, can... I do the exact <laughs> <Yeah>. same thing. <laughs> that's really funny. A lot of the magic that you were speaking of, I think that's because when you think about it, animated films, that is almost every person's introduction 
two yeah. movies. Yeah. So these are the first things that we're shown, whether it's classics from our parents' age or we're getting sat down in front of whatever the new big blockbuster animated film is that's dominating the box office, you see it in our commerce, mm-hmm. right? It's the Happy Meal toys. It's yeah. the toys on the shelf at Target. It's the backpacks. It's the clothes. It's really crazy how animated films can just completely take over the culture. So I really think that that's exciting because it's so many people's first introduction to pop culture, Mm -hmm. really, when you think about it. And then also, to kind of dovetail off of that, I've always loved like TV specials and then cartoon movies that I've – or cartoon shows that I grew up with. And then when they get – a a movie, a movie. Yeah. made that was always really exciting like there, there's gonna be one here that i talk about um in a minute not on my list but that when it happened i was so stoked oh, for yeah. it because i was like the right age to feel like this is made for me yeah you know the uh, event of the year absolutely yeah. um so still not in this conversation unless you you know did a real big zag when more when i'm zigging over yeah. here but i left off some of those TV special movies that we're talking about, like yeah. the Peanuts classics, Yo, the holiday sure. yeah. films, yeah. Cat in the Hat, The Grinch, but all of those deserve just as much credit for being as influential as they are. All Dr. Seuss animated things are in my honorable mentions. Just, are be- they? just because, I mean, when you're a kid, uh, the rainy days, any rainy day recess, that's what my teacher was throwing up on the projector yep, while we were playing. 25 minutes board. to kill? Yeah, yeah absolutely. For sure. Um, so just a quick little bit of history before I ask you this next question. So the first animated film actually traces back to the year 1908 with the production of a movie that's called Phantasmagory. And then just a few decades later, audiences got to see the first Disney animated film, which do you know what that is off the top of your head? It's in 1937. I there. My mom and several of my friends are going to kill me if I get this wrong. Is Being it crucified right now? Is it not Steamboat Willie? Uh, animated feature length. Oh, animated feature yeah. length. It's Snow White. Oh yeah. Seven okay, Dwarfs. feature okay. length. I was going to say Snow White because okay. that's where Walt Disney gets the uh, honorary Oscar mm. for it. Mm. Um, Actually, he got seven. He gets a full size one, and then wow, seven, seven do- little dwarf uh, Oscars. It was pretty cool. Oh, that is funny. Yeah. Um. So so with that over century length time span of animation mm-hmm. on the big screen, do you think if I asked you to identify an apex for the genre, you could put your finger on a certain time in which you think that animated films were at their most powerful? Man, it's hard not to say. You know the fifties to seventies, Disney, the, you know, Cinderella, Pinocchio, Snow White, you know, all those, those original classics, Dumbo. Um, Uh, So 1940 to 1960, let me just list off what came out in that 20 year span. Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, the lady and the tramp and sleeping beauty. Yeah. All in 20 years. All all in 20 years. And it, it's, yeah. It's and hard. those are just like the big household, you know, on the VHS shelf growing up titles. There's, right. of course, yeah. dozens Most and dozens but, more. But you look at those movies, just those you listed there. I mean. All timers. <laughs> all timers. And then you look at the theme parks, all are still represented. Peter Pan, Dumbo, Alice in Wonderland, all still have rides. Pinocchio getting re- getting a live action reboot. Peter Pan being remade in live action like three or four times. Alice in Wonderland movies. has been remade a Alice thousand times. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's really hard not to say that because of the weight and what it did for Disney to then be able to do after that. And there, it's iconic. I mean, Pinocchio 
is it, you know when you wish upon a star is disney's theme because of it you know um i think people forget that but yeah, you're absolutely right yeah and then um what's um sleeping beauty uh, a dream is a wish your heart makes one of the all-time classics so yeah it's it's it has to be that i would say most definitely that is the shout out to aurora sleeping yeah. beauty is probably my favorite disney princess yeah. movie and yeah. the disneyland castle which is better mm-hmm. than disney world so i'm just saying <laughs> Um, okay, I do have three other nominees though okay, here for yeah, you, yeah. and we'll see if you sway on the on um, into one of these camps because I'm really not sure where I stand. the The other big chunk of time I think that people might identify is that resurgence that happened right as we were coming of age. Yeah. So that's like 1989 to 1999, and in that time span, you had The Little Mermaid, Rescuers Down Under. Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Nightmare Before Christmas, The Lion King, a goofy movie, Toy Story, Hercules, Mulan, A Bug's Life, and then in 1999, Toy Story 2 and Tarzan. And so, yeah, it's really hard not to, one, immediately start leaning that way because those are those all the are ones. Those are ours. Oh, those are our yeah. films. And then also, I would hold all of those in the same camp of the those first films we were talking about. Like, I almost like forget that Aladdin was made when my age because it's so classic. Same with like Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And Beauty and the Beast in 1999 was nominated for Best, Best Picture. Yeah. For, Crazy. Yeah. yeah. And then Aladdin goes home with a few awards as yeah. well. Toy Story gets nominated as mm-hmm. well. Um, well, Toy Story gets another one of those honorary Oscars. Right. The, yeah. That, an achievement. That's what it was. Yeah. And then the, I think it was right after that when they start doing well, Best Animated. Well, so then that's another one of my, you know, potential nominees here for Apex. We'll get yeah. to that in a minute, yeah. though. But but that time period, and I think it's so apt what you just said, where we think of some of these movies, like The Little Mermaid as well, as being, oh, that had to be like 80s or maybe yeah. even late 70s. But no, it was all within that golden renaissance. Dude, it just makes me think of the McDonald's cups that we get. And yeah. it's just like, if, if the McDonald's made a cup out of that Disney movie, that's an all-time. Put it in the Library of Congress. It's in the vault. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, if I look back at old, like old uh, disposable camera photos and I'm wearing a, a flat-billed hat or a backpack or a sweater or something, then you know it had its moment. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So then going back to the Oscar moment, though. The first Oscar for Best Animated Feature was in 2002 Mm -hmm. for the films that came out in 2001. The winner was Shrek. Right. So that's a huge moment and and kind of funny that it it wasn't a Disney Disney production that took it home the first year. Shrek was in competition, though, with Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, which is – that's like the TV show. I loved that. (laughs) It, It like, you know, age nine and definitely, ten definitely and then, watched that movie oh yeah and then when the movie came out it was great um and then monsters inc and, as well uh, yeah and that's to me is like a huge huge snub i will we'll, we'll, i have we'll, to kind of agree with you on that yeah, just yeah. i mean like i was having this conversation with a friend the other day um about shrek and why it's not necessarily like my end all be all favorite and a little bit is because like how does it beat monsters incorporated i mean shrek is amazing but monsters incorporated is so so unique it really is so so that's another potential nominee, just yeah. the fact that all of a sudden these movies were quality enough to really be recognized by the Academy yeah. each and every year, even though, of course, we have our gripes with the yeah. the Oscars. <laughs> but, but then when I mentioned Toy Story 2 and Tarzan earlier, I talked about how they came out in 1999, mm-hmm. right at the end of that renaissance. Here is just the year 1999 as a potential nominee, which is already a fantastic movie year yeah. in general. But the animated movies from that year, and of course this makes sense, right? The boom of the internet, all mm-hmm. the digital processing, everything that could happen on computers. So you had Tarzan and Toy Story 2. Then you also had 
The Iron Giant, oh. South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, <laughs> and Princess Mononoke. Damn. All That's in a, one year. That is a... That, that And I'm sure I'm forgetting some. If we had to look at an individual year, I mean, obviously, it's a little more unfair for the more recent years because mm-hmm. you can pump more movies mm-hmm. out. But that's that's a that's an ace right there of a year. That's unbelievable. Right. Um, and it's too bad that the Oscars weren't around yet. Right. Then, but that's that, certainly one of those years. Who, where in, in that year, who would you give it to? It's funny. I a part of me wants to, and maybe I'm speaking for Max a little bit here because I think he would probably say South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut. Right. And for that to be 2D construction paper, yeah, you know, and then put on the big screen, and that really took over the culture. Yeah. Um, but it's also hard not to say. I think the Iron Giant has maybe lasted the longest. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of partial to to going that way as well. But okay, so after looking at these four different periods, would you still agree with your first thought of? the original golden age there yeah i kind of have to yeah it's too it's too cemented in history in and of itself and to you know it's kind of hard not to when you say if you don't have those movies you don't get the other movies i I, and i think that's where i land as well and i'll get to it with one of my selections here later in the top five Mm -hmm. but the foundation that those first 25 years really laid yeah that's why we have everything Mm -hmm. that we have now today that's not even Disney related, right. of course. Um, okay, so if we, that's if that's the time period that we're going to say is maybe the best, when it comes to picking a favorite animation style, do you think you could pinpoint that down to yeah, one? N- like, yeah. yes, no. Like it's so it's so hard. Cause I know because I because I, I, I love them. I love them all. I love the nostalgia of that golden age of animation. The two D yeah. multi pane camera you know thing that they're able to do with multiple sheets of paper and just all the way that like some like one of my favorites that's number one on my list bit of a spoiler there um but how there was you know it felt like there's like canvas backdrops or almost like painting backdrops so so that's and and that's what i'm talking about about the multi-paint like they would do that backdrop and then with they would have other prints that would be closer in that would be transparent on top so you still get the background so when the camera moves you are literally like moving around that bush and there's things behind it that the camera can then get and it's so cool the animation techniques that they were able to come up with back then and like now it's you yeah, know, it's like 80 years ago. Yeah. And like then this house like filmmaking old school filmmaking just blows my mind of what they were able to accomplish. Like looking at it now it's just like, oh, I bet there's an app for that. I can just like I'm going to get no that, kidding, f- right? that filter no yeah. problem. Where back then it's it's insane. And then but then also like the the more high definition, the more deeper colored of like the Lion King aladdin era of the 90s when we grew up is like the same but also like upgraded and then i mean pixar is just kind of takes the cake i love their unique uh, cgi style um i do have a soft spot for like anime i do as well like grew up you know obviously pokemon dragon ball z you know the the big ones my brother just like watching toonami and things like that yeah Yeah. and then but then also like sunday morning cartoons Mm -hmm. batman the animated series Mm -hmm. spider-man x-men um, I have grown to really like the DC Warner Brothers animated style because they keep that kind of animation style and it feels authentic. It feels kind of you know new and old at the same time. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's hard to put one above the other, but I mean, I've said it countless times on here. I am addicted to nostalgia. So that classic Disney artwork is just like, it brings a tear to my eye. Like it just warms me up. So I want to give a shout out to Rotoscope. Because that's one that that's an animation side that we haven't really talked about, and so I and I do love a good rotoscope film. I have one of those on my list upcoming here as well. But I did land on the classic 
2D Disney yeah. style yeah. as well. I think that that's just chef's kiss. It's that well, magic that you grow up with. It's it's the Disney touch too, where it's like I just get get a big smile on my face of watching the clip of Walt, you know, in the in the turn style of just a little thing of Mickey walking, you know, mm. and just strutting mm-hmm. his stuff. And there's just something about that where it's like, God, that's cool. Like, right. Yeah, Mickey, right. go for a walk. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's do our top five. This you was know. an impossible task. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk out of here and immediately change the top five. I guarantee you, it's so hard to to land. But I tried to I tried to do enough. I tried to touch on all the things. I, I did. I took the exact same approach. Yeah. Which I'm okay. I'm I'm re- I was already really happy that it's you and I on here. But now we don't have to have Max jump in with like a South Park or something yeah. like that. Even though shout out to the South Park. Um, but no, this this will be really fun. You want to go first? You want me to? You go first. Okay. My number five film is from 1997. It's a Japanese film directed by Satoshi Kon. It's anime, and it is Perfect Blue. Nice. So Perfect Blue, for those that don't know, is the story of a young woman. She's part of a pop music group, and she decides – a very successful pop music group. And she decides to leave the group to pursue a career in acting. And she quickly finds out that it's a much harder lifestyle change than she imagined. She starts taking – some pretty seedy gigs just to stay afloat and to keep the paychecks coming in. And this movie for 1997 is so influential. I mean, one of my favorite directors, somebody who we'll get to here in a couple of weeks, but Darren Aronofsky Mm -hmm. owes owes so much to this movie because Black Swan is like a direct, I would almost say like adaptation of this movie, Mm -hmm. to be honest. And then there's a really famous scene, a pretty iconic scene, I should say, in Requiem for a Dream, where Jennifer Connelly is completely submerged in a bathtub, Mm -hmm. totally taken right from Perfect Blue. Um, But basically what happens after this young woman starts to realize that Bright Lights Big City isn't all it's cracked up to be is there there is a cyber stalker of sorts that starts targeting her this movie came out like right as the internet was booming and it really pays uh plays in mm-hmm. to to stalking and cyber stalking and creating fake internet profiles for people which is just you're watching and now you're like, there's no way that this movie is over almost 25 years old now but sure enough it is it's very transgressive but it's very very ahead of its time um not scary. I, I wouldn't say that it's scary, but just very dark. Um, her her apartment that she lives in, as she becomes more reclusive because of her fear for going outside, just gets messier and more cluttered. And so there's also, you know, there's throwbacks to certain Polanski films, and and there's certainly influences that went into making this movie Hitchcock and Bergman and all these iconic directors. But this movie is singular, and it is its own. And it's a very interesting, interesting like 2D anime animation style mm-hmm. behind it. So I really appreciate it for that, for its uniqueness and for its willingness to to just be very dark. Like yeah. it, it should come yeah. as no surprise that my list maybe <laughs> won't be a bunch of G-rated movies, yeah. <laughs> but but I wanted to put this in at number five. It's a first time watch for me actually within probably the last eight months or so. Mm-hmm. It'd been on my watch list forever. Finally cranked it out. And when I did, it was one of those like, okay, I'm putting my phone to the yeah. to the other side of the room and I'm I'm dialed in on this. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but he, the, uh, this is the movie that Nolan got inspired for the hallway scene in Inception. Yes, there is. Yeah. Um, well, that might actually be a film called Paprika, but I'm not sure. I do think 
if anything, I think I, it's the same either art artist yeah, or same director. Yeah, but but you're right. There's you can type in on YouTube like perfect blue film influences. It, 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 it echoes. It, it does. ripples. It really in, does in, into yeah. the future of film. There, yeah, for sure. Um, well, going on a more colorful, bright side of things. Starting off my list, uh, already my t- next film will too. I okay. promise people. <laughs> um, I mean, already kind of brought it up, but this has kind of been. I always say this is my favorite classic disney film um even though this is one of the 90s which is one of our films that came out but aladdin 92 robin williams i mean it just immediately solidified itself like i wore out that vhs i'm sure i think we had to buy two copies um but just i mean it's such a classic adventure tale um you know you're it, it, it's just classic i'm gonna use that so many times using this but your classic love story your classic adventure tale your your classic buddy friendship between abu and um and aladdin and then aladdin and genie you have the the classic even the, jasmine and raja yeah jasmine and raja the magic carpet and genie like there's there's so many uh, great characters great chemistry with these anim- animated characters jafar is like the perfect villain you know the the end the evil genie versus the good genie you know all the all this stuff like there's just something about it that is just resonating with me my entire life about it um the colors too the the brightness of it all it just screams disney those mcdonald's cups i was talking about i'm pretty sure my parents still have that aladdin one uh and it's just uh, some of the most iconic disney songs too i i can't tell you the last time i saw a disney parade not use you know prince ali mighty is he exactly man you got the arm moves down and everything (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) um but yeah and it's just it's just so fun and i love showing it to my nieces and nephews i love you know talking about it with 30 year old friends of mine it's just an iconic classic film um that i think will remain as such forever i don't i don't see that one going away anytime soon and also you know there's some films that i'll bring up in my honorable mentions that would be in my top five but because over the course of time some certain aspects of it are a little problematic yeah and you know even now disney plus on some of them has to put a disclaimer of like this was made during these times and you know Mm -hmm. as a better way to reflect on it we're putting this disclaimer saying like look at how much we've grown um and so this one there really is please please yeah please (laughs) please look at how much we've grown um but this one, I, I don't see the, any any problems ever coming out of it. It is just a, a good, pure movie. Um, some of the great, com- best comedic Disney performances with Gilbert Godfrey as Iago. Um, it, it's just absolute classic that I think will just continue to stand the test of time. Because here we are. I'm talking about it 30 years after its release. Yeah, no kidding. Wow, yeah, 30-year anniversary yeah, right now, huh? Yeah. Um, another thing, too, that I really like about this movie is that it, it does something that not all Disney movies uh do or if they did them they maybe didn't do them as successful as aladdin did but sort of the quote-unquote cold open mm-hmm. of finding the lamp in in the arabian nights and all of that and the cave closing and swallowing isn't that like at the beginning yeah no that, that's yeah. very beginning and jafar is even disguised as that old man right. and then, like it doesn't oh, work gosh, and then yes. he's like well Got to go find a diamond in the rough, and then you know, and then it's uh, Robin Williams doing the other character of the guy telling you the story mm-hmm. of like, come, come closer, come closer, right? Back up, right, back up right. a little yeah. far, you know, like, uh, yeah. So yeah, great opening, mm-hmm. great opening, because it is like uh, Disney eventually starts getting away from that kind of storytelling, but it is a fairy tale. Aladdin is essentially a, a fairy tale, yeah. as Cinderella is, as Sleeping Beauty is, and rags and, to riches. Yeah, and yep. so you have a, a narrator, you have that mm-hmm. person guiding you, guiding you through. Um, you know, much like you know Hercules, you have the the gospel uh, mm-hmm. choir. You know, you, you have this guy telling you the Arabian Nights story, and yeah, like I said, it will just stand the test of time. 
All right, my number four pick is from 1988, also from Japan as well, um, and directed by Heyo Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. It's a Studio Ghibli film, and it is My Neighbor Totoro. Yes. This is the one I landed on. It's my only Ghibli film here on my list, at least. But I think it's because it's my first one. Mm -hmm. Like, my sister and I, we wore, once again, wore out the VHS growing up. Perfect age for it because, of course, this is the tale of two sisters who move to the countryside with their father to be closer to their sick mother. Um, not that that was necessarily Rachel and I's upbringing, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just that that sense of magic and, and wonderment. We did move to a new town around the same age as the girls in this movie. Um, but, no, what, what I've always really, really liked about My Neighbor Totoro, aside from – you know, just kind of like how how fun the movie is to look at, especially like the Totoro character. Mm-hmm. I think is just great. Um, but is is the influence the subtle way that this movie can um, pay homage to something like Alice in Wonderland, like a previous genre classic, mm-hmm. where of of course you have the big um, kind of rabbit ears on Totoro, and especially our first introduction to him is very much like going down the rabbit hole, chasing the white rabbit. Um, cat bus is very much designed to sort of look like the Cheshire cat. Right. But what's so great about my neighbor Totoro is that instead of these, instead of the countryside and the woods being like a dangerous place where adolescent curiosity can kind of like rear its ugly head and get you into trouble, like in Alice in Wonderland. Basically, all the the fairies and the spirits and the ghosts of these woods—they're just there to help, yeah. man. Like they're yeah. they're teaching you how to like you know plant seed, you plant a seed, grow a tree, no. things like that. Where it, very sweet, very um, innocent. Mm-hmm. I, I would say you know obviously like what, especially with with the May character, she goes missing a few times. There's a little bit of you know, kind of hubbub. Well, where is she? We have to find them. Of course, there's the whole thing with the mother and every time we go back into reality. But I also just love the juxtaposition between like the father who's this professor and he is sort of aloof. Um, like when May's jumping on his belly in the morning and then you see her, it's the exact same way she's jumping on Totoro's belly later on in the movie. So I love all of that. Of course, yes, like the bus scene and the rain with the leaf and the umbrella, iconic stills mm-hmm. and iconic scenes from this movie. But yeah, it's it's my favorite uh, Ghibli film, so I, I wanted to get it on here. And there's something so whimsical about that entire uh, animation style that Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki does. Um, there were even my three-year-old niece loves Totoro, loves mm-hmm. Kiki's Delivery Service, has no idea what's going on in the movies, but just lo- <laughs> yeah. loves these characters, loves these animations. And it, yeah, there is something very, very cool and special about those entire films. I unfortunately didn't have room on my top five list to have a Studio Ghibli. On my oh, wow. Okay. So, so I'm happy that okay, you but did. But yeah, we got it represented. Um, yeah. The honorable mentions. Honorable mentions. We'll, we'll go, Every we'll other go movie through. in yeah, the catalog. Literally. Yeah. Literally. Um, all right. Going on to my number four. Um, another film that got briefly mentioned earlier. Um, this is one of my favorites just because of uh, it was a film my brother Neil and I bonded over when we first saw it, and we instantly became obsessed with this. And it's just such a cool movie that I love the fact that it's still somewhat relevant, a little bit of a cult classic, um, but it is coming a little bit more of a bright light. But The Iron Giant, mm, yeah. uh, Vin Diesel, I mean. The guy deserves an Oscar for that performance. No, I'm just kidding. But um, the, just a great uh, uh, animated movie that mi- that 
channels that 1950s classic feel. I mean, obviously the time setting is a little bit around that time. You're not really sure, but the animation style itself, even though it's not Disney, has that Disney feel, has those bright, vibrant colors. And then just a great story of, you know, a kid named Hogarth, you know, doesn't have many friends, but is just constantly obsessed with like sci-fi and movies and just something bigger and better than, you know, his single mom having to work all the time. And he doesn't have friends. He makes friends with the junkyard guy that just makes random art. And then this giant robot crashes down to Earth that's meant to be a weapon but has a little thing in its head. And so he's just like this lovable oaf goofball of a massive, massive robot. And this is around the time where you start kind of combining the 2D animation with a little bit of that 3D model. And so the flight scenes on this is really cool. Obviously, the whole connection to Superman uh, obviously tugs on my heartstrings a little bit, but just a great story of, you know, don't judge a book by its cover just because you are capable of something doesn't mean you should do something. There's a lot of different layers and, and lessons to be learned from this. And then also it's just a, it's just a fun movie. It's just a really fun, cool movie. Um, and especially like a kid's animation movie that adults can still enjoy. Like I don't mind ever having to throw this on. And sometimes I'm scrolling through like, Ooh, Iron Giant. Yeah. Mm, gonna throw that on. Yeah, I think I think my next film, which I won't go into quite yet, but one of the reasons why I like it so much is because it's one of those first times. And now, even though The Iron Giant came out when we were still children, but you can continue to return to it as an adult because you understand that this wasn't made just to babysit a bunch of seven-year-olds. Like, mm. this is also made for adults and people of all ages to, to enjoy. Yeah. So, so I do, I do really appreciate that about the iron giant, definitely on my honorable mentions list. And then great cast list too. I mean, you got Harry Connick jr. As the junkyard cool guy. That's obviously has, has a crush on Jennifer Aniston's character, which plays the mom. But then you got shooter McGavin as the, the government G man trying to, mm-hmm. you know, who's hell bent on finding this robot. And yeah, it's just, it's just an absolute classic. If you've never seen it, I mean, I can't recommend that film highly enough. Have a box of tissues with you. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All right. My number three film is from 2009, directed by the aforementioned Henry Selleck, and it is Coraline. There it is. Yeah. Um, So, like I said, this was really... So, this movie comes out when I'm 19 years old, and I... It's one of those theater-going experiences that I will never forget, because I saw it probably two weeks after it came out, just because the buzz was so good, and I went on like a... Tuesday or Wednesday night, you know, and so basically an empty theater. It was all in 3D. It shot in 3D. So the glasses and everything else like that really didn't take away from it. I was super into it. And I really realized that animated films can be for us too. Yeah. You know, they can be for adults as well. Um, and, and in a different way, right, from something like a perfect blue mm-hmm. or uh, I'm sorry if Akira's on your list or something like no, that. No, but, yeah. but, you know, like a hard R violent anime film or maybe even like a challenging rotoscope movie this was still like a big studio film maybe not targeted directly to children but one that was certainly trying to toe the line between like family friendly while also tackling some like pretty heavy themes and while most importantly to me trying to be spooky yeah like Coraline's it's got a lot of terror it's got some creepy shots in it, it it does um so of course Coraline story of a young girl who begrudgingly has to move from her hometown in Michigan with her family to the Pacific Northwest, actually. Um, it, it, I just rewatched this a couple of a couple of weeks ago, and it's Oregon where they end up, which makes sense because it's always raining um, at this uh, new apartment home that she's 
having to stay at. And she meets, you know, um, she meets a new friend. She she meets the cat. She has these different people kind of showing around, and she's getting warmed up to the idea, but she's still not really into this this new lifestyle that she has until she finds this portal that leads her into a world that is much more appealing. But then we and Coraline herself soon find out that this comes at a cost. Yeah. Um, so shot entirely in 3D, like I said, incredible stop motion in this movie. I was looking up some of the facts on it. 130 different sets, 52 stages that covered over 183,000 square feet. Jeez. So that tells you, I mean, this had to have looked like a carnival or something, you know, the way that they set everything up. Say that square footage again. 183,000 square feet. I work at a brewery that operates in an 80,000 square foot warehouse. So double that and add 20 more. Jesus. 20 more thousand. Jesus, that's insane. Wild. That is massive. Uh, But also too, you know, much like Wendell and Wild, um, Henry Selleck in this film is tackling some real life stuff, mm-hmm. the family dynamics, the neglect really of a child and and what can happen I think is like one of the big keys for adults when you watch this movie cuz mm-hmm. the parents are just like so consumed in their work and that's one of the reasons why she loves her other mommy and her other dad because mm-hmm. they're so about her. Um but yeah, I mean this movie comes down to some of the stills. The button eyes are just like terrifying. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows oh, Coraline for the button eyes. But also Coraline herself, I think, is just like one of if we were doing she would also be on my list of like top five animated characters Mm -hmm. just because that yellow rain jacket, the blue hair, but then also just like her facial expressions and the micro expressions that they were able to capture, especially in the first like 15 to 20 minutes of the movie as she's discovering and exploring her new surrounding. Her look of just like annoyance when a floorboard's creaking or she finds a leak or like the cat's bothering her. She gets the poison oak on her hands and she's got this rash to deal with. Just hilarious and so relatable where I'm just like, how come Coraline isn't a more popular Halloween costume? It's a great look. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, Coraline, honestly, right now, recency bias, I'd probably have it as my favorite animated film. But the other two for me are just kind of like legacy picks that I couldn't shy away from. Absolutely. That's a film I've only seen once, and I, I definitely need to revisit it again. But I think it's a little bit of that kind of compared to Nightmare Before Christmas. It's like, that's a little more spooky. Than, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? um, all right. Well, this one was really hard for me to, to land on, um, and probably I, I will probably still change my list move, moving forward. But as, it, as I was thinking of, of coming across, like, okay, I do have to pick a Pixar movie. Well, and the three spot's tough, right? Because four and five, we always kind of like to have fun with those picks. Yeah. But now the top three, the it top gets three. real. And so it's it's hard for me to to pick a favorite Pixar movie because it's like I have, I, I, I have an opinion of the good dinosaur probably has the best cinematography in a Pixar movie, but is nowhere near the top of the list. They, you know, each movie has its own, its own specialty. We could have a whole episode on our top five Pixar films. Right. Yeah. They all have their different merits yeah. for sure. Um, but the one that has stuck with me, the one that blew me away, the, the one that is just from top to bottom, it is such a good animated flick. Can I guess? Yeah. The Incredibles. A hundred percent. Yep. Uh, I mean, from the from the animation style of like, I I guess maybe I just have this thing for like the like the neo fifties, like something that looks like it's set in the fifties, but kind of in the future too, um, because this is set in the same kind of setting. And there's the you know classic superhero 
tropes, the classic superhero music. Michael Giacchino like gives me one of my favorite Disney soundtracks of all time. Um, you know, just a great. Uh, cold open, you know, a setup story of, you know, Elastigirl and Mr. Incredible meeting, but then end up basically creating his future arch nemesis. Um, small moments in this film that just carry a lot of weight. I still think one of the greatest villains ever invented is Bomb Voyage, a French explosions expert. It's such a brilliant name. It's a great pun. The guy has 30 seconds of screen time, but like still, so even like when he crashes into the building and then he realizes something's off and the explosion goes off and Bomb Voyage walks through, it plays some like French accordion music. Like he has his own theme for like his short little moment. Like it just has so much detail so many fun moments. And then overall, you know, the story of just a family coming together. You don't have to do things on your own. Uh, it is a great, and this is before Disney acquires the rights to Marvel. So this is them kind of stepping into the superhero world, which, I mean, this is before Iron Man. This is say before, early on. Yeah, this is 2004. Um, so it's them just kind of trying to just, you know, throw something out there and do something really cool and fun. Like the, an original. Right? And, an original. Yeah. And that was the thing is like, it feels like it's based on an old comic book. It feels like there was an incredible storybook but this is just brad bird just coming up with something pretty amazing and even i love the the uh the island that syndrome has it's called no man is an island no man is an island so there's like you know there's like these little puns here and there uh the the acting of um craig t nelson as uh mr incredible Mm -hmm. like great voice acting and also like perfect animation to match Craig T. Nelson. He looks like Craig T. Nelson. Ellen Parr looks like Helen Hunt. It's There's this great uh, just way of capturing those actors in this animation style that they just nailed on the head. And, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for superhero films. I mean, obviously, if you've been listening to this, you know that. And so this it's a no-brainer that this is one of my favorites. And then also, like, 2004, some of the cleanest CGI still like yep. uh, compared to some animated films getting pumped out now, like there, you would think that this came out yesterday and then obviously a success. They pumped out a sequel rumors of a third one on the horizon. I remember the GameCube game was fun as hell. Mr. Incredible just bashing shit. So much fun. <laughs> so yeah, the Incredibles. And then, and then honestly, after my last trip to Disney, the Incredicoaster like quickly jumped the list of one of my favorite rides. I've, oh, I've, I didn't I've, know that was a ride. Now, yeah, they changed the uh, the California Screaming. They changed the, all of uh, California Adventure to be a little bit more Disney since they were trying to get away from that a while ago. So the pier and Paradise Pier is now Pixar Pier, so it's all Pixar themed. So they changed California Screaming to the Incredicoaster, and the storyline of it is like Jack Jack gets loose, and so you're chasing Jack Jack through this thing, and so he's popping out doing his different powers and stuff, and this riding roller coaster listening to the Incredibles theme just does something to you. You feel like you can run it through a brick wall and you have all these powers. So there's, yeah, there's, there's obviously when an animated film can roll over weight into the world, it, it deserves a little acclaim. So yeah, Incredibles, probably my number one favorite. Pixar, which is why it's at number three. Uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to see what your number two and number one are right now because <laughs> I thought that, if, you know, if I was a betting man, I almost would have said that yeah, the Incredibles should w- it, would it, be top of your it list. Was, it's hard. It's hard to put it where it is, but the other two are, uh, in my eyes, are legacy picks. So they kind of deserve. Sure. They, they deserve the accolade. Okay, so my number two is a 2001 film directed by Richard Linklater. It is Waking Life, and this is rotoscoped. Um, a, a film that, to me, you know, in the in the general consensus, might not be a legacy pick, but this is a movie that I came upon at a very impressionable age. And when I watched it, I just thought that it was like speaking to me. And now that is 
Um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to make this movie sound more pretentious than it is, but it is uh, one man's kind of lucid journey through a bunch of different philosophical and existential conversations. It's Wiley Wigan, uh, Wiley Wiggins, who is um, a, a link later standover holdover from he's like the main young kid in Days and Confused. And, uh, you know, a bu- just a bunch of other Linklater films. But but so it's him, rotoscoped, and he's going through these different dreamlike scenarios, meeting other Linklater characters like um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy's character from the Before series. They show up and have a conversation. And sometimes he is just like a fly on the wall, kind of floating around and watching them without being involved and in where, where him is like the audience avatar just listening to these conversations. Other times it's him actually speaking with people, whether they are real philosophers or people playing philosophers, but they're just talking about what it means to exist, what it means to um, learn to learn how to control your dreams. There's a really, really interesting conversation in this movie that I've always held on to that has helped me lucid dream sometimes, actually, where someone says, in your dreams – if you find yourself walking through a doorway, that's kind of like a rare thing. Like mm-hmm. if you think about it, normally in dreams, you just kind of like bounce from place to place you're, and you're, you're there. You're there, right? So if you actually find yourself walking through a doorway, look to try to find a light switch because in trying to find a light switch and turning it on or off, in, in a dream, the lighting isn't going to change. And it's one of those just like subtle triggers, one of those subtle hints that can tell your brain that you're dreaming. And it's a, and it's a really cool scene when this happens um, because as opposed to, say, in a dream when you're trying to run and you're running in slow motion or you start to fly or you do any of these other things, what that does is it stimulates your brain too much, your heartbeat and, you know, your heart rate increases and you end up waking yourself up and you snap out of the dream or or at least you fall out of the dream maybe you stay asleep but you've you've jumped out of rem your mm-hmm. rem cycle now um but so this is just like one of those subtle little things walking through a doorway and looking for a light switch that can tell your brain that you're dreaming and then once you realize that you're you're dreaming you're lucid dreaming and the possibilities are endless right like you can start to do whatever you want and control your dreams so that that segment in this film has just always stuck with me i think that it's like a super cool thing but this is one of those movies that um you know you'll read about on a lot of different like kind of like you know this has been a pretty clean podcast so i don't really want to curse too much but like it is like a mind trip of a movie where where you watch it and some people will be like oh it's a great movie to watch high it's a great movie to watch when you're doing this you're doing that in my opinion it's just a solid movie across the board the rotoscope animation i do understand is a little bit disorienting and nauseating for some people but Mm -hmm. for those who maybe aren't familiar we're talking about the same um style as like the other richard linklater big rotoscope movie a skinner darkly um so so you really feel like you're watching these actors and then you know just superimposed over them is this like kind of warped transitional animation that um can can lead to some pretty trippy visuals i will say but at the same time it's a solid film um Really interesting cameos. One that has not aged well. I almost don't even want to say his name here on the podcast, but one of them that is really cool. Steven Soderbergh plays like a TV oh, nice. personality, and yeah. he has a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's just a bunch of different little vignettes that you're kind of popping in and out of that are really cool. Um, yeah, I guess I'll leave the I'll uh, I'll build this suspense, and hopefully people check this movie out to find the cameo that has not aged yeah. <laughs> well. But it's it's up there with um, 
Donald Trump in Home Alone 2. Oh, like, it's, no. it's bad. Um, but it doesn't take away from the movie at all. It's, just, it's a fantastic film. So, Waking Life. Waking yeah. Life. Added to the watch list. All right. My number two um, is, I think, one of Disney's all-time classic films, especially because it's one of those, like, not necessarily original, like it was a storybook before, and they got the rights to tell tell the story of it on, on film. Um, Ooh, one of, we might have a crossover here. Ooh, very nice. Um, one of my favorite things to do when I go to Disneyland is to go to the uh, animation studio and sit in the lobby. And I don't know if you've if anyone if you haven't done that, it's this gigantic, gigantic room, and there's got to be at least. 10 to 20 big, huge screens of different sizes that are meant to look like pages. And, and then the background is a, is a screen as well, the projected thing. And they just play 30 second music clips and show you artwork and animation from just random Disney films. And they, it's just on a loop and they just go from Mulan to Lion King to Pinocchio to Pixar to this, to that and the other, like they just cycle through everything. And I always go in and I wait for this movie, and then once this movie comes up, then I can leave, because it's my favorite thing to jump in. One of the fireworks shows they do is called Mickey's Mix Magic, where it's like a DJ mixing a bunch of things. When this one comes on, everybody's fucking dancing to this soundtrack. I think we have the same here. It is uh, It is one of the classics. 1967's The Jungle Book? Yep, that's yeah. my number one. Hell, oh, number one. That's my okay, number one. Okay, let's table yep. it then. We'll come back, or do you want to get it out now? Um... Well, no, I mean, it's it's your number two. It's my number one. Let's talk so about it now, and then we can get to your number okay, one. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, the animation, like, like I said, like watching those just clips of Mowgli walking and the Bear Necessities dance, and my favorite part, Louis Prima is King Louis. I want to be like you. That's just a banger any which way you slice it. Uh, and the whole it, soundtrack. The whole soundtrack is yeah. fantastic. Um, I think I had this on my favorite musicals list, actually, I think so. was yeah. the last time we got to talk about yeah. it. And, you know, it's just a great story, you know, from the wolves to Bagheera, the panther, to Shere Khan, to Ka, to Louie. I mean, it's... I I have written down here the danger, the friendship, the sense of belonging, (laughs) the excitement. Like, this movie really does have it all. Yeah, it it crosses every box. And and I love the idea of, like, Shere Khan as the villain... And he's acting like a tiger the whole time. He's that lingering threat in the background that's kind of stalking them the entire time until they finally cross paths with him. And I like that it's this epic journey. You know, there's a little bit of a feeling of, you know, kind of Lord of the Rings to the extent of, you know, point A to point B and all the people you meet along the, the way. The Fellowship of Mowgli. Yeah. yeah. It, it, and that's exactly. what you're referring to back at the beginning. Like this right. is like adapted from the Mowgli stories. Right. Right. And so it's really cool to, I don't know, and then just a classic, you know, of talking animals and, uh, you know, a hero that you can identify with in, in, in a small or big way, um, tugs at your heartstrings and just has stood the test of time. Well, I'm really happy you had it on your list because I, I had it written down here. You know, I wanted to shout out that it was obviously from the Kipling story, but yeah. but at the same time, I was just kind of like, what more can be said about yeah. the Jungle Book, you know? So. I did a little digging and tried to find some interesting um, trivia, and sure enough, there's a very um, pivotal fact here from from the production of this movie. Um, and what so what I have written down here, I'll just read it, is that this is perhaps the most important film ever released by Disney because it was the last film to be overseen by Walt himself before he passed away. That's very cool. And so many believed that if this film would have flopped in the aftermath of his passing, that Disney Animation Studios would have just been shut down 
And the juggernaut obviously would have kept pumping out films, but they would have made the full transition to solely live action film. Um, But the fact that the Jungle Book still did so well. And so that's why, you know, going back to our original animation discussion, talking about that golden age from the 40s to the 60s, it it was fantastic that all that happened. The 60s did start to slow down a little bit. This comes out in 67. That could have been the end of it, though. But because of the success of the Jungle Book, they were, you know, all these animators were able to keep their job. They were able to keep producing movies. And yes, even though the renaissance that happened in the late 80s and 90s is a renaissance. I mean, a renaissance by definition is like a comeback, right? right. So like they acknowledged that there was a downturn, but at least this, the production studio, the animation did not get shut down. Yeah. So shout out to the Jungle Book. Man, I just had a brief imaginative thought of a world without <laughs> Disney animated films. Post 1967. Yeah, I don't want to live in that not world. A world I want to live in. Don't want to live no, in that world. No. Um, so yeah, I, I also to the Jungle Book. Um, you know, if you go and fire this up on Disney Plus, it does have one of those disclaimers yeah. that you talk about at the beginning. I think you know just uh, some depictions of the Indian culture, absolutely, um, and and some of the voices of the animals. Even though for the most part, I think they're okay. Um, it is funny that the buzzards mm-hmm. are, are supposed to be the Beatles. I think yeah. that, you know, British people of all folks might actually take offense to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean the jungle book all time classic. It's my number one, number one Disney film. The only Disney film on my list actually. So, cause so I just figured, you know, save the best for last. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Well, so my number one might be a cheap selection and so you you may veto it but i I, it was hard to ignore this one and not only the way it held in my personal life but also kind of what it did for animation in and of itself and a cool example of it um but i'm talking fantasia I, I dig it. I yeah, yeah I approve specifically Fantasia 2000, just because mm-hmm. that was the one I got to go see in IMAX up at the Boeing Theater, and that's freaking awesome. was absolutely incredible. Really, also a reason why I think it's my favorite, and a reason it sticks with me is um, uh, one of my mom's favorite stories to tell. I'm nine years old, and we're up at the science center for something. I forget what we're doing up there, and there's these people just kind of standing at this table, just asking people. Hey, do you want to be in a commercial? Hey, do you want to be in a commercial? Hey, do you want to be in a commercial? And my mom was like, come on, great, let's go do it. And I was in one of those moods where I did not want to be there. I did not want to do anything. I didn't want to talk to anyone. And you just drove up to Seattle. Yeah. You're a cranky kid. I'm I get cranky it. as hell. Yeah. I'm pouting. Arms are crossed. <laughs> I'm like five feet behind my mom. Like, I'm just not, I'm just not a part of it. I don't want a part of this. So my mom just goes, yeah, I'll be in a commercial. So they start talking to her. And sure enough, it's Disney. They're asking her, what's her favorite Disney? So my mom is just going off the wall. They ask me what my favorite Disney film. I go, I don't know. I'm just, I just don't want, don't want any part of this. Well, it ends up being a commercial for Fantasia 2000. And so she gets to film this thing. It was eventually the commercial for the DVD release mm. or the, the VHS DVD release. And so because she got selected and filmed it, the premiere in theater, we got to go a day early. And so not only did we get to see it up in IMAX, but it's with only the other people in this commercial. So there's like 15 total people wow. in the Boeing IMAX theater. And I mean, absolutely blown away i remember watching the original fantasia and at that age being super bored and then at that age seeing this was just like mesmerizing. i didn't want it to end uh, the different animation styles was really cool to see the 
afterwards where they kind of show you some of the stuff and like those those little bits in between stuff steve martin showing mm-hmm. up was I, I mean i was crying laughing i mean that guy has a direct line to my funny bone even at that age um rhapsody in blue was by far my favorite and i think i was gonna ask what your favorite segment is rhapsody in blue and then actually i brought up the list because i forgot the firebird suite is i think absolutely iconic put it on today with my Enchroma glasses. And that was Ooh, just absolutely yeah. mind blowing. Um, I love the, uh, bald mountains, my favorite. Oh yeah. Night- Nightmare on bald mountain. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's that one and sources apprentice that, mm, you know, of course. that survived the transfer over to yeah. 2000. But yeah, I mean, Nightmare on bald mountain, we would play that in pet band during football games and stuff. And like that made me like play, yeah. I was playing the big bass drum. Like I felt like, you know, <laughs> fucking in Helm's deep Lord of the Rings, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, like the the movie is just super iconic, and then also such a cool form of animation of no sound. It's just animation melded to music, and what you're able to do with that and a story you're still being able to tell is pretty incredible. Um, Was it pomp and circumstance with Donald Duck as Noah? Like the, mm-hmm. who, who comes up with that? Right, but but iconic. Even if you're not religious, that's a great. Not only is it a great Disney bit, but that's a great just you know example of animation lining up. Um, but yeah, it, Fantasia 2000 has just always been just a huge spectacle. And I think I chose that because I can't choose Fantasmic from Disneyland, the, the live show they do, but cause it's like, it, it, it there's a lot of close, closeness sure. of, of yeah. kind of like what I mean by a spectacle and what Disney is doing. But I mean, even the cine- cinematography shots of just the orchestra and in, in, uh, in Fantasia 2000, the the green screen backdrop they did mm-hmm. it was a little bit like spacey there's just there's just something so cool about that and it's just utterly iconic and a huge staple in my family so when we decided on this episode i immediately was like well that has to be either like one a or just one you say like this is this is the one everything else is just kind of separate but yeah, like i like understand this, this why that here. holds yeah. yeah such an yeah. important place Okay, well, there's plenty more here still to talk about. Do you have your list of honorable mentions? I mean, it's all up here in it's the noggin. It's all dumb. Okay, um, I'll go through my list here. You jump in and say, like, yep, got that, yep, got that, got yep. that. And then if there's anything else at the end here. Um, so, so, and some of these I do think are, are you know, gen pop mm-hmm. consensus. I'm throwing it out there yeah. just because of I understand the influence. doesn't necessarily mean that it's one of my favorites. Um, but so a few of those would be, like, the Beatles, Yellow Submarine. Absolutely. Very important, I think. Watership Down mm-hmm. is a big one. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which... Definitely, that was very high on my honorable yeah. mentions. Um, and then Who Framed Roger Rabbit, kind of being that 50-50 split, right. leads me into Space Jam, which... Right, right. Gotta give the Looney Tunes a shout well, that's out, that's like right? a 75-25 split. It is, <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, the aforementioned Akira and The yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas, and now these are starting to get into, like, yeah. you know, these could have been on either absolutely. of our list. Absolutely, you know, The Lion King... Finding Nemo, mm-hmm. Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. One that I've just seen recently within the last year that I just loved was How to Train Your Dragon, the first I one. still have not seen those. It's great. Yeah. Great, great. Um, Got to give a shout out to our boy Deacons and Gore Verbinski with Rango. Yeah. I'll fire up well, Rango any day of the week. And that's a great animation style where they literally had those actors acted out in a theater room mm-hmm. and then had the animators watch what they filmed. And so those movements are like, that's what Johnny Depp was doing. Yeah. Acting out these like weird bow legged, you know, walks right, and stuff. Right. Um, Inside Out is another Pixar yep, one for yep. me. So my two, yeah, my two big Pixar ones are definitely Finding Nemo and Inside Out. And then the last one, which may surprise some people, um, but Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That's fantastic. Very, I think very Max probably list. would have had that on his yeah. list. Yeah. 
And uh, that was one where I I considered putting it on there. I re- actually just uh, was at a bar the other night and it was on TV and I got insanely distracted with no sound That's and subtitles. a really good movie on mute. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and also a really cool animation style to where each Spider-Man in that is rendered in a different mm-hmm. animation style. So mm-hmm. that's just a cool, you Big know, catch-all. Yeah, Inception mm-hmm. style anim- <laughs> animation mm-hmm. there. Um, a movie I've brought up countless times and I, because I've talked about it so much on the show, that was almost my reason for leaving it off my list, but Atlantis, the lost empire. Ah, another one. Yeah. yeah. Now that you mentioned it, I'm surprised. Yeah. I, like it was really hard for me to leave it off my list, but it, I understand though. It's had its 15 minutes. It's, it's had its 15 minutes. And then also like, I look at these other five and I'm like, well, these other five are objectively better films. So it makes sense. Uh, why that's I big of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my coin flip for Pixar was between Incredibles and Wally. Wally is one of my all time yeah. favorites. Um, that space i mean like i'm obsessed with space and that that moment when he's on outside the ship and he's got his hands up in the crystals and they all kind of twirl behind him just iconic and just super cool jeff green as the captain um of the axios is is amazing you may or may not be getting wally on criterion for christmas i'll just say that right now so make sure no one else gets it for you yeah um yeah very excited for that um but then all of Pixar. I just recently watched Coco for the first time. Last I saw week. that on Letterboxd. Yeah, absolutely blown away. Don't know why it took me so long to sit down and watch that. Um, I left it off my list probably just because of recency bias, but immediately jumped the list of my favorite Pixar hey, films. I had to do the same with the Sea Beast. Where yeah, I was just like listen, <laughs> the Sea Beast is not one of the fifteen, even twenty greatest animated films, but I still do love yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and then I mentioned it a lot before, but the DC animated films have always been something I felt that DC has done better than Marvel. Um, Mask of the Wholeheartedly Fa- yeah. agree, especially Mask of the Phantasm. Yes. We've talked about it before on the show before. Uh, a Batman animated film that had a theatrical release um, has a pretty dark storyline, a really cool, unique Joker origin story that is essentially the origin story of the Joker we see in the animated s- series. So it's kind of cool if you haven't seen it that you mm-hmm. don't know. But then if you watch this, really heavy influences um, influenced from Jack Nicholson's, you know, origin story of a gangster turned joker um but then also under the red hood john dimaggio who does um jake from adventure time and bender from futurama he gets his opportunity to voice the joker and you can see that he had a little influence from like heath but just kind of like went a little darker and deeper and it's just absolutely mesmerizing really cool story of the in the lore of batman too of what joker and the robins have in connection stuff so that's a really good film um and then other Disney animated films like Moana just recently rewatched that with my uh, niece and nephew. Fantastic. Yeah. Everything I'd say that came out like in the last seven years, there hasn't really been a stinker. No. Uh, I mean, obviously frozen, you know, we has had its time in the sun, but I don't see that film going anywhere. I no, mean, yeah, no. that, 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 that movie can fly as close to the sun as it wants. Exactly. It'll never burn. Yeah, up. absolutely not. Um, tangled. I was really blown away by the animation style. Um, one of the first, like, uh, I was watching some behind the scenes stuff that, each one of Rapunzel's hairs were animated by a person. That's so, so wild. E- so each frame, they're like, hey, this hair will be there, this hair will be there. So like just insane amount of detail you know, presented to these films. Um, brave. Bra- brave, absolutely up there. I love the Cars film. Cars 2, man, but Cars 1 and 3. Yeah. They're basically, I mean, Cars 3 is basically Rocky 4. It's <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's, it's great. Um, 
But then uh, even Incredibles 2 has a, has some great moments. It's fun to see that franchise. And then, uh, you know, the, the king of Pixar, Toy Story. Um, that franchise, except for four, is pretty much perfect. Toy Story 2 is my favorite out of the three. So that was really hard not to put on my mm-hmm. list as well. Um, and then, you know, classic Disney. Like, it was hard not to put Peter Pan on there, but it also has its problems aging the way it has. It's, it, I almost put Pinocchio on my list. I almost put uh, Hercules on my list. I almost put uh lion king two and a half simba's pride no i'm just joking but um, is that one and a half or two and a half it's one and a half one, one and, and a half, half. Yeah, yeah simba's pride something like that yeah um but yeah there's i mean like i could literally list every single disney film because i just i just love that just world so much mm-hmm. you know uh, it's just it's the world of animation is pretty amazing it is and we should give a shout out also to Encanto, which right Encanto, now holds yes. the belt right yeah, now for absolutely. best animated feature from the oscars I, we, last year yeah we watched that on christmas me and my family and i think i was more glued to the screen than my than the little ones it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a very mesmerizing film um and then you said the nemos mm-hmm. nemo and dory um inside out is one of my best friends favorites so i've been watching that a lot over the past uh, few years yep. and that's that that one i really loved because there is no villain there is no bad guy it's just a, a story about a character dealing with some feelings stuff. Yeah, yeah yeah and it, so i thought that was really cool to see um soul has its moments I, oh yeah i mentioned I feel like we've forgotten about soul too yeah. soon well and that that was soul suffered from what i think uh, a good dinosaur did where it came out the same year as another pixar film so it kind of got right. overshadowed soul got overshadowed by luca um and then the movie i just referenced got overshadowed uh inside out overshadowed a, a good dinosaur um but like i said before the cinematography in a good dinosaur there are shots where i'm convinced they just went out to the to the wheat fields in kansas <laughs> and just got some great like roaming shots in wyoming and montana like it's unbelievable mm-hmm. some of the shots um Going back to Soul real quick, yeah. I think that also that film has maybe just longevity wise, it, it has sort of suffered a bit from, you know, almost going back here to Waking Life, but the the existentialism and kind of the where do we go when we die yeah. subplot of Soul has not made for rewatchability among Kids. six to ten year olds yeah it's yeah. Uh, you know definitely heavy for a pixar film that you're aiming at when then you have coco which then does it very well and almost mm-hmm. perfectly of mm-hmm. what happens after you die and seeing that side of things um so yeah yeah that's a that's a very good point uh i think the last thing i'll say as i like i'm not gonna i think most of the honorable mentions got got thrown out there going <laughs> uh i mean t- the teenage mutant Ninja turtles animated movies were pretty fantastic um i think tailspin eventually had a movie uh, I don't know if you ever watched the Tailspin TV that, show. No. Tailspin was a Disney show where Baloo from a Jungle Book started flying I am cargo planes. With him. Yeah. Wow. Started flying cargo planes. Okay. And doing dog fights in the sky with uh, uh what's the Baron's name? It's a fox. And it's basically he just runs a shipping business and these guys keep trying to steal his shipments. And so <laughs> Tailspin, it's one of the greatest theme songs of all time. Uh, I have the DVD set. I'll let you borrow it sometime. It may even be on, on Disney Plus. Um, but I think I think they had had one of those movies. Um, Final shout out. I know I mentioned it earlier, too, in that that window, um, that decade that we grew up in. But a goofy movie. I know you love a goofy yeah, movie. I, can't, I, I don't know why that one slipped through the cracks so far. I mean, I've always said that's been my favorite animated. I think I'm kind of a little burnt out on it. I've watched mm. it a lot over the last 10 years. <laughs> but it is it is absolutely fantastic. It's insanely classic for us, um, you know, coming out when we grew up. I still will sing Powerline in the shower. I've always wanted to do a Powerline costume for Halloween. Oh, so that'd be good. That may be on the horizon. That movie always made me want to perform in my school's talent show. A hundred percent. Always. I remember get our, the crowd going. A little uh little 
gig harbor inside story here uh do you remember the tide guys when we were in high school you're looking at one yeah so i don't know if you were there freshman year because usually uh only the juniors were allowed into the assembly to vote for you know for the tide guys Yeah, yeah For some reason, it was like I was in media uh, AV or something, and so I got to be in the room. And there was a guy who, like, they had a projector and they put butcher paper underneath the projector screen, and they showed that. But his school talent show and the part where he tumbles out, he then tumbles out through the butcher screen. They turn off the projector and he does the standout dance oh, in front of everyone. I was like, that was great. badass, man. Yeah, that was super cool. Um, so yeah, goofy movie, very much high up there. That's probably number zero on my list, maybe. Mm, I like <laughs> um, that number zero. And and thinking about this list and thinking about stuff, I don't. Whoever is animating water at Disney and Pixar deserves a f- huge raise because Moana, Good Dinosaur, Nemo, anything and everything that you send them to Amazon and HBO because the water in House of the Dragon and Rings of Power looks like crap yeah it does not look real <laughs> no it yeah. doesn't and this stuff is like i just like immediately get thirsty looking at this water like it looks so good um so i yeah the, the, <laughs> that's a great end yeah. <laughs> but yeah the realism in animation these days is pretty mind-blowing yeah oh I've, i have i can't oh. believe this left my honorable mentions max would kill me if i didn't mention get it. it in the adventures of tintin ah uh, yeah that, that is another one where there are shots and camera angles that spielberg did in that movie where i was like how did you not just go film this motorcycle and get the reflection off the hubcap and the mirror? Like there, there are some moments where that film, the street looks real. The the wheels look real until you see Tintin and the guy like, Oh yeah, this is animated. Oh geez. Max's fist pumping somewhere. (laughs) All right. So that wraps up our conversation surrounding animated films. Um, I think kind of my big takeaway from this discussion is that whether it is IP or it's an original animated film, what we have here in animation, and it's funny and it's really ironic that it become that it comes down to this and I think horror films, but these are the two genres of movies that can really still like take over the culture, kind of yeah. like what we're talking about Absolutely. and have people talking for weeks and weeks and weeks. So we love that. We love when people are just talking about movies in general. I'm not sure if Wendell and Wild will really, you know, it, the film's been out for two weeks and I haven't seen a huge movement yeah. or um, any big discussions around it, but it is fun. It gave us an opportunity to Absolutely. finally yeah. do this episode. And, you know, the year's not over. We still do get GDT's Pinocchio. Yep. And then there was that other weird Pinocchio that came out a couple yeah. of months ago, which yeah. we didn't really pay any attention to. But can't wait to see what happens at the Oscars this year yeah, for animated absolutely. films. It's been a really good year so far. Well, um, yeah, that does it. Thank you so much for your support of the show. Max will hopefully be back with us next week as we return to our full category review system and discuss one of the fall's most anticipated releases, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. I got to admit, I'm pretty stoked on this movie um, for, of course, all different types of reasons. But where's where's your hype monitor at right now? I was really skeptical when they announced that they were still moving forward after Chadwick passed just mm-hmm. because, I mean, we've we've said it countless times, not only what that movie did, but what he did for that role, what he did for the superhero genre, what he did off screen. I mean, the, he, he was T'Challa. He was the king of Wakanda. He was the Black Panther. And to move- Made for- Wakanda feel real. 100%. At, at 100%. Yeah. And and to then move on without him just felt like I kept on saying like you have to do this right otherwise you, you you'll get burned to the, mm-hmm. burned at the stake mm-hmm. 
And so I was very skeptical until I saw the first trailer and I had goosebumps. I got very excited. I I can already see what they're going to be doing well. Uh, Namor is a, a, a character in the MCU. I've been waiting for them to introduce. He was in the comics. He was a member of the original Avengers. So a character that's been around for a long time. I like what they're doing and kind of making him a, a villain anti-hero. I don't know too much about the character. I know that's not necessarily what, what was going on. And I like the cultural representation of changing him from a white dude to, you know, and, you know, representing, you know, Spanish, Mexican, Aztec culture it looks really, really cool. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very excited. I've this past year I've become a, a big, a huge fan of Winston Duke. Yeah. So, so I'm, yeah. I'm very excited to get see M'Baku back. Um, and then what they do with Nakia and uh, Shuri. Well, you know, who's going to be the Black Panther? It's it's, it's going to be it, it is exciting. Um, and then obviously, of course, Angela Bassett back in the queen as queen. I mean, yep. the, the, the wardrobes alone are, are getting me in this in this in this Absolutely. in the theater. So, yes, I am very excited for this. Cool. Well, until next time, remember to be kind to one another. Give back this holiday season if you can. And until next time, we will see you at the movies. And as always, drink movies and watch animated water. (laughs) 